us with technology, with tech stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm a senior writer for HowStuffWorks.com, where we explain how stuff works. If you've ever wondered how a car engine works, or how people work, or in some cases don't work, go to HowStuffWorks.com. You'll likely find the answers to all your questions there. And if you don't, let us know. We'll find the answers for you. But here on Tech Stuff, I cover all things technological. I love technology, and I've been doing this for about eight years. So uh, not that I've gotten really great at it, but I'm still so enthusiastic. I'm so enthusiastic, in fact, that I'm going to revisit a topic that we covered way back in 2013. That would be Hyperloop. Yeah, that's when we published the episode titled The Hype About Hyperloop, because I'm clever with headlines, y'all. Since that time, we've had a couple of startups that formed in order to pour in money, time, resources, effort to make Hyperloop into a reality, change it from just this interesting vision Elon Musk had into an actual form of transportation. So I thought it would behoove us to revisit the topic and see where things stand now. Plus, I can use the word behoove again. That's twice in the same day. I'm recording this the same day I did a live stream about the game Dungeons and Dragons on a show called Game Changers. Behoove is my word of the day. Anyway, I can also talk about a really boring company, and that's what's called foreshadowing. Now, before I jump into the latest news, I should go back over the history of the Hyperloop concept and explain not just where it came from, but what is the actual idea of the Hyperloop and how is it supposed to work and why is it even something worth talking about? Well, back in August 2013, that's when the world at large learned about the Hyperloop concept. It's when Elon Musk published a white paper that was about 58 pages long. And Elon Musk, in case you aren't aware, is the entrepreneur behind such companies as SpaceX, the private space company, and Tesla, the electric vehicle company. This white paper was all about a high-tech transportation system. It was kind of a train, kind of like a subway, kind of like, well, Elon Musk described it as a cross between a hockey table, like an air hockey table, and a rail gun, which is a pretty exciting way to think about getting from point A to point B. Now, the motivating factor for all of this seems to be that the state of California had approved a high-speed rail project, and Elon Musk, it got his dander up. If you were to look at Elon Musk's dander that day, it would have been in the up position. Now, that's because in that white paper, Musk laid out all of his frustrations with this high-speed rail project. And they really boiled down to two major ones with a lot of subsidiary ones. The two major ones was that would be that uh, that one, it was incredibly expensive, just really a, a multi-billion dollar project. So it was, in his mind, financially wasteful. Secondly, he argued that it, out of all the high-speed rail systems that were in operation or proposed, it was one of the slowest. So he said, on a per-mile basis, it's one of the most expensive. On a speed basis, it's one of the slowest. So why would you want to spend a lot of money to not get anywhere fast? He thought that that was an incredible 
waste of time and money and that it wasn't going to solve the issue of of uh, of of speeding up travel between major cities, specifically Los Angeles and San Francisco, which are quite far apart. If you're not familiar with California geography, you might think, oh, well, those are two cities in the same state, but they are hundreds of miles apart from one another. It takes more than five hours of driving to get between the two. So a high-speed rail system would be nice if, in fact, it were high speed. But Musk argued that the the one that was proposed was not nearly fast enough to be any uh, more advantageous than just taking a flight from Los Angeles to San Francisco and that there had to be a better way. And so he said there needed to be a less expensive, safer, faster method of getting from San Francisco to Los Angeles or vice versa, and that he had the better idea. Now, Musk acknowledged that for cities that are really far apart from each other, think about a thousand miles or 1600 kilometers or more, supersonic air travel is likely the best option, assuming we can solve a few major issues with supersonic travel. One of those is getting the right airplane geometry to minimize sonic booms so that air travel doesn't become massively disruptive for the population on the ground. A sonic boom, by the way, is when you have uh, some mass traveling faster than the speed of sound through whatever medium you are uh, traveling through. So in the case of air, depending upon air pressure and temperature and that sort of thing, if you're traveling faster than the speed of sound, you're building up this pressure wave that ends up collapsing in on itself after the object passes through that area. And that collapse creates this sonic boom. The sonic boom travels with the object as it moves through. So if you have a supersonic jet traveling overhead, that boom you hear as it passes over, it's not just a single boom. That boom is actually traveling with the supersonic aircraft as long as it is traveling at those incredible speeds. So there are companies that are working on building out better plane models that can travel at these supersonic speeds while minimizing that sonic boom. And they're making some amazing progress. Uh, these are include private companies as well as NASA working on these designs. So... Assuming we get that problem solved, Musk says it's probably going to be the case that the most efficient way to travel, the most, uh, uh, the cheapest way, really, it's everything from the amount of time you're spending to the amount of money you spend, will probably be supersonic travel. But for cities that are closer together than that, but still a good distance away, let's say like 900 miles or around 1,500 kilometers apart from each other, you would want a different solution because with a supersonic jet, you would reach cruising altitude and you would only then be able to accelerate to supersonic speeds, but you would only be doing that for a very short while before you had to descend. You would be essentially be up and down so fast that you can't really take advantage of the supersonic travel part. So it doesn't make sense to take a supersonic flight between two cities that are 900 miles or closer together. What you could do is build this hyperloop system in order to travel at incredible speeds between those points. And that's where the sweet spot is between two cities that are 900 miles apart or less. And that they have to be two cities where you would typically have a lot of heavy travel between the two. There's got to be a lot of traffic. So assuming you have that situation, 
That's where Hyperloop, he argues, would make a lot of sense. Again, his example being Los Angeles and San Francisco. But any major metropolitan areas where there's a lot of travel between the cities that are at this distance from one another would be candidates for this kind of transportation system. Uh, he would want this train sort of hybrid system to travel at incredible speeds, not quite supersonic. We'll get into that. This is a system that that consists of an enclosed tube or tunnel. And the air pressure inside that tube would be low. It would still be present, but it would be low. So you would have these giant pumps along the tube that would pump out a lot of the air. So you have a very low pressure system inside the tube. Uh, that lowers the air resistance considerably, but does not create an actual vacuum. So there's still air inside the tube. Musk acknowledges that the vacuum approach, though very effective, it removes air resistance, uh, would be incredibly difficult to achieve from an engineering perspective because even the smallest imperfection in the tube would allow air to leak in. You know, if you have an extremely low pressure system and you've got greater pressure on the outside, obviously any leak, any crack is going to allow air to rush in. So he says going with a low pressure system would make more sense than a vacuum. Uh, it's too difficult to maintain a vacuum within a room, much less a 500 mile long loop of tube, in his words. So rather than using something like a maglev system, a magnetic levitation system in which the train would levitate above the tunnel floor using electromagnetic repulsion, Musk was pro proposing using air bearings instead. So this would not be a system where you use uh, magnets in order to repel one another, and that would make the capsule float off the floor of the tube. Instead, it would be like an air hockey table. So if you're not familiar with these, uh, an air hockey table is a table that's got a surface with tiny pinprick holes in it, and a fan under the surface of the table blows air up through those holes. You put a little plastic hockey puck on top of the table, the air coming up from the bottom ends up making the hockey puck glide across the table. So that's kind of the principle he had for the the Hyperloop concept, except instead of having the tube generating this air and blowing against the capsule, he thought of the capsule having essentially these pinpricks at the bottom of the capsule blowing air down. So that would be where the capsule would generate some lift. It would also generate lift through its forward momentum. And at the front of this capsule, he want, he proposed putting a, a pump, a fan, essentially, uh, because there's still air inside the tube. If you didn't have a way of moving that air around the capsule, you would run into an issue where you're compressing the air ahead of you as the capsule moves down the tube. It's pushing a column of air. And if the air cannot get around the capsule fast enough, you start compressing it, and that ends up being like an air braking system. It will actually slow down and ultimately stop the capsule, pushing against it in the other direction. So he proposed putting a fan in the front of the capsule to pull air in, partly to allow the capsule to continue moving down the tube at speed, but also feeding into an air compressor that then would power these air bearings and allow the capsule to maintain lift on the bottom of the, uh, over the top of the tube flooring. And because you're not using wheels, you're not losing a lot of energy to friction 
right? You've got a little bit of air resistance that you're dealing with, uh, but you're not dealing with wheels run, running against a surface. So that loss of energy to friction is minimized. It's still there. You still have some air resistance. You still have some other elements of friction, but it's greatly reduced. So uh, this approach, he said, was going to be uh, an effective engineering solution to the problem. Um, now, what about propulsion? The air bearings provide lift, but how does the capsule actually move forward? This is where Elon Musk was suggesting the uh, external linear electric motor version uh, of of uh, propulsion. So if you know how an electric motor works, let's, let's use a very simple version. You've got, let's say, a permanent magnet and you've got some uh, uh, you've got some uh, electromagnetic, you know, a conductive wire insulated conductive wire. Uh, we're, we're talking more of a dynamo than a motor here. And you move the permanent magnet so that uh, its north and south poles are rotating and uh, go, the, the coil of inductive wire is then being exposed to a, a fluctuating magnetic field. That's going to induce current to flow through the wire. Uh, that also, by the way, generates its own electric field because you have electricity uh, voltage essentially applied to this uh, this conductive wire. He's thinking about the same sort of thing, but in a linear pathway. So you've got this, uh, this electromagnetic force that is pulling and pushing the capsule. You have opposite poles, magnetic poles attracting one another. That's pulling the capsule forward. Then you have like poles pushing against each other. That c- continues to push the capsule forward. This allows you to accelerate the capsule like a rail gun. You're using the electromagnetic force to accelerate it in a linear motion. So it's going straight. The air bearings are what allow it to have the lift. The uh, electric motor allows it to have the forward momentum. And this was kind of his general idea for the infrastructure. As for the capsules themselves, his version of it would seat 28 passengers per passenger capsule. He had a couple of different models of capsule. Uh, he also proposed a version that would have uh, slightly larger capsules. These would hold up to three full-size automobiles, and you could have passengers inside the automobile. So you could be sitting in a car inside a capsule, and that way you would start in your car in L.A., and then 35 minutes later, you'd drive out of the capsule in San Francisco, which would save you a ton of time from the normal five hours plus of driving. Uh, the maximum width for a passenger-only capsule would be 4.43 feet or 1.35 meters, so not very wide, uh, with a height of 6.11 feet or 1.10 meters. So again, not very tall. If you're a tall person, you'd be stooping a bit in order to move around this cabin. Uh, doors would either be of a gullwing design, meaning like the DeLorean, they lift up, or they would be slides so that it would allow for easy uh, loading and unloading of the vehicle. Luggage would go on one of the two ends of the vehicle, depending upon where you had put the rest of the components, so either in the very front or the very back. And uh, the weight of the passenger capsule without the interior components, just the weight of all the external parts, would be about 6,800 pounds or 3,100 kilograms. And Musk estimated the cost for each capsule's exterior to be about $245,000 a piece. Now, all the stuff on the inside, 
like the seats, the door panels, the restraints, the various displays would weigh another 5,500 pounds or 2,500 kilograms. And it would cost another $255,000. Then there are all the other elements that add to the cost, such as the propulsion system components that would be in each capsule, the air compressor blades, uh, the air bearings, all of this stuff. All of that told, Musk estimated that a passenger-only capsule would cost $1,350,000 apiece and have a weight total of 15,000 kilograms. And he goes on to estimate that you need about... $54 million to make enough capsules for the Hyperloop system he was proposing between Los Angeles and San Francisco. Now, that's enough capsules where you would have them at either end so that you could have a consistent uh, service between the two cities on any given day. So $54 million for just the capsules, that's not too bad. However, that doesn't include the cost of the infrastructure. We'll get to that. If you were traveling on that route, how safe would it be? Well, Elon Musk, again, arguing for the, the system he was proposing, said that there'd be a lot of redundant safety features, including maintaining a healthy distance between capsules. So between you and the next closest capsule would be a gap of 23 miles or 37 kilometers on average, which is a lot of safety space to prevent collisions between capsules. There's still tons of other safety issues that you would have to take into account and make sure were uh, uh, prepared for. So that way you don't have the, any massive issues. Now, according to Musk, the Hyperloop would allow for 840 passengers to travel per hour between Los Angeles and San Francisco. Now, that number could be increased by decreasing the amount of departure time between capsules. He was envisioning capsules arriving at a station, unloading loading up, and every two minutes you would have a capsule leave either L.A. or San Francisco. Now, that, that doesn't mean that a capsule only spends two minutes per station. You would have one station or one capsule arriving at a station while an, another capsule, maybe three capsules ahead, is leaving. So you would still have several minutes to unload and load each individual capsule before it blasts off and heads over to its destination. Uh these capsules would be going pretty darn fast. Musk talks about them hitting speeds of 760 miles per hour or 1,220 kilometers per hour, which is also known as Mach 0.91 at 68 degrees Fahrenheit or 20 degrees Celsius. So you're talking about going nearly as fast as the speed of sound, but not actually breaking the sound barrier at that speed, at those temperatures. And again, that offers me the opportunity to remind you guys, sound travels through the air at a speed that depends on other things like air temperature. So you have to take that into account when you talk about the speed of sound. It's not a constant through all altitudes and temperatures. You have to have these other variables in account before you can actually talk about the speed of sound. Uh, although we can usually just assume when you're talking about a standard temperature when we're usually using that term. Back to the show. At that speed, you would be able to make the trip between Los Angeles and San Francisco in about 35 minutes. And the high-speed rail system would take two hours and 38 minutes on that same trip. So the system that Elon Musk was saying was inefficient, slow, and expensive would take two hours, 38 minutes. 
driving takes five hours. A plane trip would take a little bit more than an hour, like an hour and 15 minutes. So the Hyperloop would theoretically be the fastest way to get from Los Angeles to San Francisco, assuming it works the way Elon Musk imagines. So 35 minutes is a huge amount of time saved going from point A to point B. Uh, it would be the fastest solution by far. Uh, you might wonder what it would be like to actually travel inside one of those capsules. According to Musk, uh, he imagines that the entire interior would have displays, kind of like television displays or computer displays, that would show a landscape. Maybe a model of the landscape that you're actually passing through, or maybe it would be something else like outer space or under the water or some other city if you wanted to, or maybe it would just be television because there's no point in having windows. You're inside an enclosed tube. All you would see is the interior of a tube whizzing by at 700 miles per hour. Uh, using the displays would help you get some other sensory input. Uh, there's other interesting questions like, would this affect your sense of, of uh, your, your perception of space? Like, would you feel any motion sickness due to this kind of thing? Uh, that's a question that I don't know the answer to, because as far as I know, no one's actually tried it. But it is really interesting. Now, we've got a lot more to talk about, uh, and I'm going to dive into some more details about what travel aboard the Hyperloop would theoretically be like, as well as talk about some of the companies that are trying to bring it to life. But before I do that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Now, I just mentioned about being inside those capsules and looking at those displays and, you know, seeing some gorgeous stuff. And, and that sounds really nice. You would have restraints on your your seats because you're talking about accelerating to pretty incredible speeds and then eventually decelerating. Now, the idea is that you would do this gradually so you wouldn't be experiencing any very powerful G-forces. That would also mean that the tube itself would not be able to have any sharp turns on it because the amount of g-force you would experience as a passenger would be too great you would uh, be very much uncomfortable uh, if not blacking out due to those g-forces being placed on your body if you were making sharp turns so you'd have to have very gradual uh, curves to your hyperloop track and you would have to uh, again have this long acceleration and deceleration so that you're not placing too much stress on your passengers. But let's go back to price for a minute. So I talked about the capsules and that they would cost a cool $54 million each. But what about the tube itself? Well, Musk said it would be several billion dollars. He eventually came up with the figure, rough napkin figure of being $6 billion for a Hyperloop system. But he adds that this would still be less expensive than the high-speed rail system that California had approved. He said, yeah, it's $6 billion for this hypothetical thing I just made up. But it's many more billion dollars for this other thing that exists. So, um, you know, it's it's kind of easy to say that it's only $6 billion, only $6 billion when uh, you have just proposed it and no one's had to actually build the thing yet. But let's just for argument's sake, say that, in fact, it would cost $6 billion to, to build because it, I, I don't want to cast aspersions toward Elon Musk. I'm just saying that until you build something, you really can't say how much it was going to cost, uh, not with any real authority. It's only after you've built it that you really understand the cost of it. The tube, he says, would be made out of steel, and he says that you could construct it in prefabricated sections and then 
kind of snap them together, which is being a bit flippant on my part. It actually would involve using an orbital seam welder to create a seal between each length of tube. So you would put in a prefabricated length of tube, and then you would just seal it to the previous one using this orbital uh, seal welder, which kind of goes around the entire tube and makes sure that they are nice and tightly welded together. And he also suggested that these tubes would rest on pylons, so it would be an elevated track that would be above or really to the side of Interstate 5 uh, in California, which was more or less a direct path between L.A. and San Francisco without too many sharp turns. He says that you would have to have a few deviations from the highway in order to avoid putting too strong a curve in the track. Uh, but those deviations would be, in his words, minor. Uh, that way you could avoid putting those unacceptable G-forces on the bodies of your passengers, which, as we have already discussed, would be a bad thing to do otherwise. Musk also said that the energy needed to power the Hyperloop could come from solar panels along the top of the tube. Now, according to Musk, the panels would be enough, uh, would be able to generate enough electricity to power the entire system and also charge batteries that would allow the system to operate even if the sun weren't out. So if it were an overcast day, which is common in San Francisco, not necessarily so in Los Angeles, uh, or if it were nighttime, you could still take the system from L.A. to San Francisco or or San Francisco to L.A. because you'd have enough battery power to keep it going. This is one of the reasons why he was arguing for this air bearings system. He said the air bearing system would be less expensive than a fully electromagnetic maglev system, and it would consume less power than a maglev system. So you wouldn't have to worry about creating a, a huge drain on the existing power grid. You could have it all self-powered through these solar panels and batteries. Keep in mind, Elon Musk, again, is behind Tesla, and Tesla's big product that's coming out aren't really electric cars. I mean, that's the the flashy side. It's really the battery solutions that Elon Musk is behind. So arguing for a system that would rely heavily on battery power also serves his interests to some extent. In his paper, Musk argued that the energy per passenger using the Hyperloop technology would be less than any other form of transportation. Travel by airplane would represent the greatest amount of energy expended per traveler per mile. So he was saying the Hyperloop, based on his calculations, would end up being less of an energy drain per person, per passenger, than anything else. That includes cars, motorcycles, trains, any other system in existence would be more energy per passenger to get people from point A to point B uh, compared to his hypothetical Hyperloop. Uh, and I, I, I keep saying hypothetical and things of that nature, again, not to disparage the idea, but just to acknowledge the fact that without an actual working system, we're, we're relying upon theoreticals, hypotheticals. We're not relying upon actual hard data that we can look at and say, oh, yeah, in fact, the math does work out the right way. Uh, due to this low cost of operation, Musk says that you could charge a very reasonable price for tickets on the Hyperloop. His suggestion for a one-way ticket from Los Angeles to San Francisco or vice versa would be $20 for a 35-minute trip between the two cities. He says charging $20 per ticket for 20 years would offset the $6 billion estimated cost of constructing the whole shebang. 
which is pretty incredible. I mean, it's making a lot of assumptions again that you would have enough of uh, a passenger base to be busy and charge at $20 and that you're patient enough to take 20 years to pay off this investment. But uh, if it's correct, that is amazing. $20 would be a steal compared to an airplane ticket or even a ticket on the California train because that high-speed rail train, they were talking about much more expensive tickets than 20 bucks a, a person for a one-way ticket. Uh, again, without having all of the math done, we can't be sure that 20 years would be enough time to recapture the cost of construction. Uh, I don't know if that also builds in any potential maintenance costs that surely would come up over those times, but he claimed that $20 a seat, that would do it. A couple of notable companies have formed to try and bring this vision to life, and one of those is Hyperloop One. So let's take some time to talk about this company, because it's got some stories behind it. So there's an entrepreneur named Shervin Pishavar, who first talked to Musk in January 2013. Now remember, it was August 2013 when Musk announced this idea of the Hyperloop. And they were traveling to Cuba, and apparently during this trip, Musk talked about this Hyperloop concept, and Shervin was really interested in it. And he even said later on that Musk should go public with this idea. So according to the Hyperloop One webpage, it was Shervin who convinced Elon Musk to publish that white paper and talk about this. Uh, after Musk's announcement, Shervin gathered a team together to form the startup Hyperloop One. Now, if you go to Hyperloop One's website and you look at this team, it includes some names on there. There's Jim Messina, there's Joe Lonsdale, David Sachs, and Peter Diamandis. But there's one name you will not find on the Hyperloop One website, but he was among the founders, and that's the name Brogan Bambrogan. So Brogan Bambrogan, formerly known as Kevin Brogan, was an engineer who worked at SpaceX, and of course that's the private space exploration company. He married a woman named Bambi Liu in 2013, and the two decided that they would merge their names together. So it was kind of forming a new name by combining their names. That's where he got Brogan Bambrogan, which I think is adorable. And he became the chief technology officer for Hyperloop One. But then things seemed to go very wrong. And we don't know the full story, but we do know about the lawsuit. So I can tell you what the lawsuit said. According to Bambrogan and a few of his colleagues, Things went sour at the corporate level at Hyperloop One. So you've got this company that is trying to create the actual technology that Elon Musk was talking about. Meanwhile, according to Ben Brogan, there were some shenanigans going on at the corporate level. He alleged that the company leaders were being wasteful, that they were blowing through investor money on things that weren't necessary or that were fraudulent in his eyes. And he also claimed that the corporate leadership was engaging in nepotism, that they were hiring on friends and family for things that they weren't necessarily qualified for or that there might have been more qualified candidates out there that were being ignored in favor of these folks. He also accused Pishavar of using stock options as leverage to get what he wanted from employees, essentially holding it over their heads uh, as both a stick and a carrot at the same time. 
So in other words, these were a whole series of really ugly allegations and accusations. Van Brogan then says that he and some of his colleagues voiced their objections and concerns, and then they were all met with repercussions. They were met with punishments. Van Brogan was met with a threatening gesture. Specifically, he says that Pishavar left a rope knotted in a noose on Van Brogan's desk. There's some security footage that seemed to potentially back up Bam Brogan's accusation. There's a man who, you know, they say was Pishavar, and he's clearly holding some rope, although you can't necessarily see if it's a noose or not. But still, if that is true, it's a pretty ugly move of intimidation. It's not your typical corporate behavior unless you're a salesperson trying to move property in Glengarry Glen Ross style. Always be closing, guys. Always be closing. Well, Ben Brogan then said that one of his colleagues was fired in front of his own family the next day, and another one was demoted, and that Ben Brogan himself was encouraged to take a leave of absence from the company. So he responded with a lawsuit. Hyperloop One's response was also accusatory. The company lawyer said that the lawsuit was, quote, unfortunate and delusional, end quote, and also claimed that Bam Brogan had been trying to undermine Pishavar and was actually trying to do a corporate coup and and change the leadership uh, through some other form of corporate leverage. And so there were accusations flying on both sides. Now, in November 2016, news broke that the two parties had settled this lawsuit out of court for uh, a, an unreported sum. So no one was talking about how much money changed hands. According to a statement from Bam Brogan's lawyers, uh, it said this, quote, My clients are pleased to announce they have reached a confidential resolution of litigation with their former employer and look forward to moving on with their future plans, end quote. Bam Brogan, by the way, recently founded his own company called Arrivo, with its headquarters apparently less than one mile away from Hyperloop One's offices. So that's got to be awkward if you're ever in traffic. Arrivo is also in the Hyperloop design game, so they're getting in that space. According to Bam Brogan, his new company has a, quote, unique take, end quote, on the Hyperloop concept. No idea what that means. Meanwhile, back at Hyperloop One, the company was installing a, uh, they installed a 50-foot-long, 12-foot-wide structure called The Big Tube, now, this was not a Hyperloop tube. It was a testing facility. It was meant to create low-pressure environments to test things like seals in test uh, tracks, test tubes, not a test tube, but a tube that they were testing to make sure that it was constructed properly. So it was a testing facility, not a Hyperloop tube on its own. And the Hyperloop 1 approach doesn't use air bearings the way Musk's design did. Instead, it did use maglev as the means to suspend capsules in a tube. So they went with the electromagnetic levitation route. Uh, so it, it requires a bit more power, more than a bit more power than the Hyperloop 1 or Hyperloop concept that Elon Musk was first uh, chatting about back in 2013. In December 2015, Hyperloop 1 built the Apex Test and Safety Site uh outside of Las Vegas, Nevada. That would become the testing ground for prototype Hyperloop infrastructure and capsules. And on May 11, 2016, the company hosted a Propulsion System Open Air Test, or P-O-A-T, POAT, or POAT. In this test, a Hyperloop sled accelerated to a top speed of 136 miles per hour in 2.2 seconds. That's an incredible acceleration. The test was to see if the acceleration motor would work properly. So they weren't trying to accelerate up to top speed. 136 miles per hour is nowhere close to the top speed of what their capsules would ultimately take. 
The company also announced a global challenge to find the best Hyperloop projects in the world. Hyperloop One has proposed a system that would link Helsinki and Stockholm together, which would be pretty nifty. And in August 2016, the company began construction on the development loop, or dev loop, in Nevada. This was the first full-scale Hyperloop test track. In November of 2016, the first section of the dev loop was installed. It was called Fixity. And in January 2017, Hyperloop announced that 35 semifinalists had been, uh, had been, had reached the global challenge. So they got down to 35 semifinalists. And these were proposals that would link various cities together to create Hyperloop routes. On March 7th, 2017, the dev loop construction was completed. And on May 12th, 2017, the first full-scale Hyperloop test was conducted. On July 12th, 2017, Hyperloop unveiled a prototype aeroshell. This is the outer hull of the capsules that would be in its system. And it's kind of nifty looking. You should take a look at a picture of it. Sadly, this is an audio podcast, and I cannot show you one. On July 29th, 2017, they tested out a vehicle that traveled down the full length of the 500-meter dev loop track, accelerating for 300 meters and then gliding the rest of the way. Again, at 500 meters, you're not going to get to your full speed. You just can't. But you can test out the various systems to make sure that the concept behind them does, in fact, work. The company wants to have three production systems working by 2021, which is pretty ambitious. So Hyperloop One is probably the furthest along out of all the different Hyperloop companies, and it inadvertently spawned a second one, Arivo, but it is not the only one. There are other Hyperloop companies out there, and they're all competing at this. I'll talk about another one in just a second uh, called Hyperloop Transportation Technologies. And it's really interesting to see people jump on this, again, in an area that hasn't had proven success. That's not to discourage them. But it kind of shows how Elon Musk has this amazing ability to inspire people to take chances without necessarily being able to show that you can have a return on them. People have talked about Tesla Motors struggling to be profitable. Uh, while they are clearly creating products and people have a strong desire to own them, the company as it stands is one of those that is uh, – always striving for profit, but hasn't emerged as an enormously profitable company. So for Elon Musk to continue to go forward and make these bold proclamations and have people not just take it to heart, but then pour their own money and investments and resources into trying to make it come to pass, that's a pretty insanely awesome thing to be able to do. Uh, I can't convince people to give me a seat on the subway. So, although I find that if I talk to myself a lot and argue, I often end up with a seat all to myself. Uh, but I think that might require, that doesn't rely so much on charisma as it does just social awkwardness. All right, when we get back, I'm going to talk a little bit about Hyperloop, uh, more, you know, the Hyperloop transportation technologies as well as Elon Musk's attempt to get into the Hyperloop game himself. But I really wanted to cover that weird controversy of Hyperloop 1 first and get that out of the way. We'll get, come back in just a moment, but first let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Okay. 
Okay, let's talk about Hyperloop transportation technologies for a second. This, like I said, was the other big startup to come out uh, shortly after Elon Musk's announcement. Arriva was new to the scene, but Hyperloop transportation technologies and Hyperloop One have been around for a while. So this company is also using maglev technology, but in this case, it's passive maglev, not active maglev. Now, that means that part of the system, the system that would actually be lining the the tubes, is just uh, unpowered coils of conductive wire. And so you're not putting any electricity through them. They're not acting as electromagnets on their own. Uh, this method was pioneered by a physicist named Richard Post. And the concept itself ends up getting a little complicated. So I'm not going to dive too far into it because it would require almost a full episode all on its own. But basically what you have are these various coils of conductive wire. And then you take these magnets and you put them in a specific configuration so that their poles are lined up in a very specific way uh, with respect to one another. And I'm, I'm glossing over this because, again, to get into real details, we'd have to dive into physics pretty deeply. If you pass this array of magnets over coils of conductive wire, it induces uh, a charge to flow through those those coils. And that, in turn, creates an electromagnetic field. The key to this is you have to get the capsule up to a certain speed before this will happen. But once you do get to that speed, then you are able to achieve magnetic levitation with a passive system. So you don't have to send any electricity through that, that, those coils of wire that would line the, the hyperloop tube. That means that you're saving a lot on energy. You just have to have, uh, the, the right, uh, systems aboard the actual capsule, but you don't have to power the whole tube itself. So that cuts down on your electricity needs. It also cuts down on the cost of operation. So you end up being able to pass the savings on to maybe the consumer, or maybe you're just pocketing a whole lot of extra profit. But it's a really cool form of magnetic levitation. Uh, the cool thing about it also is that in the case of some sort of problem, that there is some sort of power loss on board the capsule, for example, the, uh, the capsule will start to coast. And it, once it dips below a certain speed, a threshold, then it will not be able to create the electromagnetic uh, field or it won't be able to induce the electromagnetic field from these coils of wire and the capsule will come to a rest on the bottom of the tube floor. So in a way, it's kind of a safety measure because in a catastrophic failure, the capsules are all going to slow down on their own and then gradually come to a rest because just by the act of slowing down, they can no longer remain above the tube floor. Hyperloop's tech, Hyperloop Technologies leadership team includes Dirk Alborn, who is a co-founder of Jumpstarter Incorporated, and Bebop G. Gresta, who is another entrepreneur, and both of them have extensive experience in starting and funding ventures. So these are people who are used to starting up big companies or getting funding for big companies. They have agreements with lots of different cities, including uh, cities in South Korea, in Indonesia, in France, in Czech Republic. Uh, in the uh, a, They have an agreement with Abu Dhabi. Uh, there's an agreement in Slovakia, all to construct Hyperloop systems in the future. But all of this is really early on, obviously. So 
It's the earliest phases of the Hyperloop game from that aspect. Now, recently, as of the recording of this podcast, Elon Musk has actually decided to get into this game himself. So when he first announced this back in 2013, he did so as it, as an open source project, meaning that he was allowing anyone to take this idea and run with it and alter it in any way they wanted to in order to build the sort of systems that he had in mind. So he was saying, look, I've got this great idea, but I don't have time for this. I'm going to space and putting people in electric vehicles and other stuff, uh, being an international man of mystery, perhaps. I don't know. I don't have time to get into this as well. So someone else do it. Well, now he's saying, you know what? I think I'm going to do this. And uh, he has said that he's getting into this as well. And in fact, SpaceX has been working on building out a tube that would be not not quite Hyperloop, but is sort of a stepping stone toward Hyperloop technologies. And they've talked about also building a Hyperloop test facility in Texas. So part of this involves a new company that Elon Musk announced, the TBC company or The Boring Company. Insert tons of pun jokes here. The boring company in this case does not mean a company that is uninteresting and will put you to sleep, although it may also do that. It is talking about a company that bores holes into the earth for tunneling purposes. So it uses boring machines, machines that bore a hole into the ground uh, so that you can build out tunnels. Now, they didn't build the boring machines. They bought them. In fact, they, as far as I know, they only have one right now, and it is named Godot. And they decided to name their machines after literary characters and figures. So Godot being from Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot. And uh, I don't know if that's a commentary about literature, about whether or not literature is supposed to be boring. I hope it isn't. I was a literature major in college, and I would find that deeply insulting. Not that I think Elon Musk would really care about that. But still, come on, Elon, be a nice guy. So these machines uh, would bore tunnels into the earth, presumably for a either an underground transportation system within a city that would not be Hyperloop. Instead, it would use electric skates. Uh, imagine slot cars. If you've ever played with a slot car system where you've got these little cars and they fit into a slot, they snap into a slot on a track and then you use a little controller and you can make the car zoom around the track. It's not dissimilar to that. Instead of slot cars, you would have these sleds that would be attached to this underground tunnel system. And what you would do is if you wanted to travel across town, you would drive your car onto a platform of some sort that would lower you down onto one of these sleds. And then you would put the car in park and then the sled would zoom off. So it's like you're in a parking space that is moving. The sled itself can move through the tunnels and it can even join into tunnels that have existing sleds already moving through it using uh, a software. So it's essentially like an autonomous car, except instead of the car being autonomous, it's the sled itself. It's programmed to know where you want to be dropped off. And it picks you up, takes you through the tunnel system, drops you off wherever you need to go. And it can do so at a very high speed, at least according to Musk's design, like 120 miles per hour. So pretty fast. And th again, this is for intercity travel uh, from one point in a city to another. 
And the reason for this, Musk says, is to alleviate traffic issues. He says the, there are only two solutions you have to alleviating traffic, ultimately, in big urban centers. And that is either to go up, in the case of flying cars, or to go down in the case of tunneling. And he says by tunneling, you can create this whole three-dimensional transportation system that can get you anywhere within a city super, super fast, uh, avoiding street traffic. So that's an interesting idea. Well, that was what the boring company was supposed to be. But he also said, oh, and also you could, if you wanted to, you know, dig Hyperloop tunnels. So remember, originally he had talked about Hyperloop being a tube on top of pylons. But now he's also talking about the possibility of building a Hyperloop that would be subterranean. You would go down a couple dozen feet and then you would dig a tunnel to uh, to house this Hyperloop tube and you would go through that way. Uh, he says that, you know, this would be less expensive than other tunneling companies, largely because uh, he he's thinking of building one-way travel tubes. So instead of it being a double-wide tunnel, it would be single-wide. He says they would have to be only 14 feet wide compared to your standard tunnels, which are twice that length. And that would speed things up and make them less expensive. By speed things up, I think he's talking in relative terms because your average boring machine moves slower than a snail's pace. And that's not an exaggeration. That's legit. They actually move slower than snails move. Now, Elon Musk wants to use this potentially to build this Hyperloop system. And he tweeted not long ago in 2017 that he had received, quote, verbal approval, end quote, from the White House to build out a Hyperloop system that would connect D.C. to New York City and also potentially connect other cities like Baltimore and Philadelphia within this loop. So a verbal commitment isn't a contract. There are lots of other layers that any sort of agreement would have to go through before you could actually build out such a a system. Uh, We're talking state level. We're talking city level, county level. There are tons of different layers that stand in the way of building out a system. And a verbal agreement doesn't really hold up as anything really firm. So we still have a long way to go. But if Elon Musk has his way, he would end up building out this system on the east eastern seaboard, and you would have a way of getting from Washington, D.C. to New York City in less than an hour, going more than 600 miles per hour on one of these Hyperloop trains. Um, obviously, we're still in the early days. Back in 2013, when we talked about this the first time, it was all very conceptual and no one had really built anything, not even a testing facility yet. Today, we can say that there are testing facilities out there and they're showing some promising results. We still don't know exactly how expensive it will be to build out these systems or how much interference or, or uh, resistance they might encounter at a political level. Uh, There haven't been enough studies on the safety of such systems or potential environmental impact. Uh, I'm still curious to find out about how all these systems will be powered. If Elon Musk's system can, in fact, be powered by solar power, if he does a subterranean version, is he going to line the upper level with solar panels to power this Hyperloop? Or will it, in fact, draw its electricity from some other source? We don't have any details for these to answer these questions as it stands. So I'm sure, assuming that tech stuff is still 
alive and kicking in the future when Hyperloop either becomes a reality or is abandoned altogether, we can revisit this again and talk about what did happen, what didn't happen, what went right, what went wrong. I can say that I want it to succeed. I want this to be something that works. I want to see cities connected in this way where you can have very fast, convenient travel. I want to see it at a price where the average person could, in fact, take advantage of it. If it's $20 a ticket ends up being a reality, I think that's great. A lot of people have suggested that perhaps the expenses would be much greater than what are, what's anticipated, and therefore the price per ticket would be way, way higher, which means you ultimately create a transportation system for rich people. And rich people, while they can afford to take it, there's not enough of them to support an entire transportation system on their own. You have to have something that can have the volume of passengers needed to keep it going with that flow of revenue. Uh, otherwise, you're just going to have a very expensive toy that ends up getting a little bit of use out of the gate and then over time winds down because there's just not enough financial support. Even if all the technology works, the economics might not work. And that's the interesting thing about tech is that sometimes all your parts are working just fine. It's just they're not working enough. So that's kind of the update on Hyperloop, how it stands now and where it's going. We'll keep an eye on this and see if, again, any actual construction happens on a major level in any of these cities. And if so, how it all turns out. Meanwhile, if you guys have suggestions for episode topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, let me know. Send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. You should keep in mind, I do live stream my podcast recordings. This episode was live streamed in front of a live studio audience who are chatting at me right now. And you can find that at twitch.tv slash techstuff. Every Wednesday and Friday, I record episodes of Tech Stuff. So come join me, be part of the conversation. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 